0: Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and codings industry. Today's guest is Greg Crabtree, speaker, author, entrepreneur, financial expert. Greg founded his own firm, Crabtree Row Burger, to focus on helping entrepreneurs build their economic engine. After being named to the Inc. 5000 list for 2019, his firm merged with a top 20 U.S. accounting firm. Greg's book, Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, Big Profits, is a fan-favorite Among entrepreneurs. Thanks for coming on the show, Greg.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: So I interviewed Mike Payton from EOS and I asked him because I asked a lot of my guests that who else should I bring on? And Mm -hmm. he was adamant that you Mm -hmm. needed to be on and you had a message that was important for entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's one of those things that's been a passion of mine. So certainly the CPA industry, you know, has its its needs and and we do a lot of compliance things, but I've always felt like uh, we were in a much more unique position to really help entrepreneurs improve their business in a lot of ways. And over the years, there's been this evolution of thought. And so first I I wanted to do what we call ad hoc consulting. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you start studying some things and you start to realize there's people are really successful, but they can't tell you why they're successful. And (laughs) so, so instead of just doing projects for people, I just started studying and, the challenge in the hourly profession environment is you're not paid to study. And, and so I had to break through that mindset. And I would probably challenge all of our listeners in whatever endeavor that you're doing, you got to spend some time studying some things that you don't get paid for because it's a great investment in the future things that you will get paid for. Because had I not done that study, I never would have written the first book, never would have done endless talks since then. And then my new book is like ever so close to being at the, the draft is done. I'm about to send it to the layout artist and then hopefully we'll get it to the printer here within a month and get that out. Because a lot of things we'll talk about today are really the things that we've learned since the first book was released ah. in terms of our, our study and research in the, the world of private business. So I, I'm a, I'm a private business guy. Certainly, yeah. I look at public businesses. But I think entrepreneurs a lot of times throw themselves off course by trying to mimic large public businesses and say, oh, I can do that. And it's like, well, there, there's a reason why they do that, and that may not <laughs> apply to you. So let's. And I really think the vast majority of nimbleness and capability of entrepreneurism is really built in that idea of a privately held business because we don't get driven by our stock price. We certainly are in, intrigued by our value and want to increase our value of our business, but there's not a moment-to-moment value of our business. And so we can do things in a much more strategic
0: way. Mm. Yeah. So w- when you started to put aside time to study this, what did you find?
1: Well, the first thing that we found was is entrepreneurs have a natural inclination to distort their data, mm. and so a lot of this, probably my secondary field of study, that if I was going to go back to college, I would get a degree in behavioral economics, mm. because what's really fascinating is is there's all kinds of absolute data of finance and economics and those things. But it's how the humans interacted with it is really the most fascinating thing to me because as we produce better information, what I really try to focus on is can I create a really compelling argument to get somebody to change their behavior? Mm. And so in, in a large sense, I probably spend more time being a behavioral scientist than I do an accountant. <laughs> and and what really drove me was what is, what is that argument to convince somebody to not use their business as their personal piggy bank. It's their business. I can do whatever I want to. Well, kind of. <laughs> yeah, you can. But are you doing things that actually are to your harm when you think that, oh, that doesn't matter? Well, it does matter. It does matter that you don't pay yourself a market-based wage because you distort your financial information to where every time you see a P&L report, your mind has to do these mental Olympics to actually adjust it to what is real profitability. And so when you see a false number, Just think about the media today talking about fake news, fake news, fake news. Well, if you say fake news enough times, does anybody have credibility? Well, your financials are fake news if you're (laughs) going in there and and actually doing stuff that's non-business related and and creating distortions, whether it's personal compensation, whether it's rent to related parties that's not a market base, whether it's paying people to be on your payroll, uh, your kids and Granted, yeah, there may be some tax benefits that people can conjure up that they can argue that, oh, you can do that. Well, by the time you get through all the net net of everything, it's like the, you're, you're just really confusing everybody and you're doing more damage than you're doing good. So I, I am a big advocate of play the business straight up because and this is the, pr- the next premise of the next book is I started with. Listen, there's three simple rules to business success. Mm. Figure out what the market needs, find a way to do it profitably, and then evaluate that profit level to a minimum standard of 50% or better return on invested capital. So that, that's my simple numbers, simple rules of success. Now, I got to teach you probably how to calculate return on invested capital because most of us didn't study that in school. But there's a simplistic way of doing that calculation. But to me, that has become the gold standard of a successful business. And so to do that, I want to be mindful of, one, what is the return on investment that this business puts in my pocket every day and every year that it operates? And two, if it is a good, high-value investment, guess what? People want to pay me a a really high value the moment that I decide I want to sell it. I get the best of both worlds. Anytime I can get two benefits instead of one, that's, that's not a bad deal.
0: So, I mean, you talked about some of the things that people do. What, what sort of excuses do you hear from people?
1: So the, the main excuse for the distortion of, of compensation is this idea. So if you're in the U.S., if you're an S corporation, people are trying to say, well, I don't want to pay payroll taxes. I just want to take distributions. Well, there is kind of an IRS rule that says you got to pay yourself a market-based wage. So this is the great result of the behavior modification. Every 100% of the time, every client that we've gotten to start paying themselves a true market wage for what they do in the business, they not only have received a higher wage, but the business has become more profitable on top of it. And it's like, for once, they see the true output of the business. And so this goes back to, you may be familiar with the famous Hawthorne Principle. So the Hawthorne principle is essentially whatever you focus on by the merely focusing on it changes just because you focused on it. You don't actually have to intentionally do anything. The mere fact that you are aware of it, it will change and and, uh, hopefully potentially improve. (laughs) And that's what happens in that case is you're now aware of the relationship of the true profitability of the business after you're taking a true market wage. And now all of a sudden you see that. Well, now... So in the original book, I hypothesized, I said, well, just set from observation of our study of of privately held businesses, that 5% was life support, 10% profit was good, 15% was great. And that actually works for about 70% of the businesses out there. But there's still, that's 30% that I couldn't answer. And I had to do a little bit of maneuvering of going, well, yeah, I agree. In your case, you can't get to that number. But that doesn't mean that you're not a great business. And so fortunately for me, I'm an EO member. And so in my member leadership capacity, I get to chair an executive ed program at Horton Business School. Now, I'm a kid that grew up in Alabama on a chicken farm. And so I, <laughs> I get to go hang out with like real professors and I actually get to I actually get to present my, my information. So it's, it's kind of nice that the chicken farmer kid gets to kind of act like a real professor. The, the class is mostly presented by three other Horton professors that are just outstanding. And so one of them, David Wessels, I just really love David's material. He's our lead professor. In the first year, we've done that class five times now. And so in the first year was where David was, was talking about return on invested capital. And to be quite honest, I'd never done that calculation for my clients. It's something we studied in school. It's something that publicly traded businesses kind of look at, but nobody makes a big deal out of it. But it's it's something about that just intrigued me, and and so it, it really spurred me to go back and start studying that number, and and that was the eureka moment. And once I realized that there is this normative data point of fifty percent return or better for a for a North American business, so from our studies, that fifty percent standard we apply it to all of our U.S. clients, our Canadian clients, and our Australian clients. Now, outside of that. You probably can't apply the 50% standard, and here's the reason why. In the U.S., Canada, and and Australia, you have a very developed, what I call, trade economy. And so, from beginning of product or service to the end delivery of payment of the customer, that time frame is shorter than developing countries. So, one of the things I got a real opportunity to do is I've done some international speaking in some of the developing economies. So, I, I spoke in several of the EO... East Africa chapters back in August. I've, I've done multiple talks in the Middle East, and so as I was talking to all of those groups, I would say, well, "What's your economy doing?" It says, ah, it's a little depressed," you know, and it's like, "Well, government spending's down, and multinational spending's down." And so as, as I started to talk to them about their businesses, what I realized is the number one difference between a third world economy and a first world economy is the distance of time between the vendor or service provider and the ultimate payment. Mm. And so even though all of those governments and people were pushing for entrepreneurism and driving for development of that, the only people that could play the entrepreneurial game were people that had access to capital. In the US and Canada and Australia, you can launch a business with very little capital. Matter of fact, if I looked at my top 100 clients, most of them started their business with less than ten grand. They literally, as I say, they rubbed $2 bills together and got a third and a fourth and a fifth. And now now they retained the money. They experienced delayed gratification in terms of the utilizing of those early profits out of the business. But once they got to full capitalization, they were running fabulous businesses that were spitting off cash that couldn't be reinvested because there wasn't anything really that you could do with that investment that had a high probability of success. Yes. And so, so really, as you learn that, that cycle, what I was telling, the, I did three talks in, in the UAE back in January before the travel shutdown started happening. And so in talking to that group, they were all talking about, well, the government was really promoting entrepreneurism, but the government was the number one offender of slow payment. And it's like, that just makes no sense. I mean, at least in the U.S., our government actually pays. If, you do, if you're a government contractor, you actually get paid quite well in a reasonable speed. And I said, let me talk to your government people because they're going to eventually pay it. So the best thing you could do to enhance your economy that's trying to emerge is to just pay faster. And granted, you got to do the appropriate valuation or evaluation of appropriate expenses and all those things. But that is the easiest thing. And so what we've experienced, I think, in the world of private business, is the vast majority of our clients actually average 75 to 100% rate of return on their business. Now, how many people listening to this podcast would like to have 100% CD? <laughs> because that, that's exactly what a well-capitalized, properly profitable, targeted business is doing most of the time in the U.S. We've got some businesses in the managed service provider industry of doing IT services. That those guys, when they run their model under our philosophy, they get above a two hundred percent return on invested capital. Yeah. Now that's that that's pretty good. That's impressive. Now the thing is, is once you're there, then you have to ask that secondary question. Well, if it's such a good return on investment, then how do I scale? And so this is this is really that thing that has been murky in people's minds, and and we had a breakthrough. I think, in terms of looking at this, and this will be something I cover in the next book, is we think there's, so as, as we look at a business's capital structure, we've taken the balance sheet, simplified it, and said, listen, there, if there you, you can break the balance sheet down into three components. There's trade capital, which is traditional working capital excluding cash and debt. So I just want to get down to the things that turn over. So we call that trade capital. Infrastructure capital, pretty simple. It's fixed assets minus accumulated depreciation minus the debt associated on that equipment or fixtures. And then the last piece is what we call buffer capital. Well, buffer capital is cash and debt, cash and line of credit debt netted against each other. That's everything on the balance sheet in three simple buckets. Now, the thing is, there's a fourth capital that hides on your p and and we call that launch capital. And when I describe this to entrepreneurs, this gets them excited because this is the thing they've been arguing with their team and their accountants and and their business advisors for years. Well, we were spending that money to try to grow. And so what we started doing with our clients who are trying to scale is we want to look at a normative P&L of these are all the costs and expenses that were required to do the work that we were doing, the customers Mm -hmm. that we have. Here are the expenses that we call launch capital expenses that are the catalytic spends. Nobody made me spend it. I chose to spend it to try to get to the next place. Now, once I've segregated those two pieces, I can look at those launch capital expenses and now apply my 50% return standard and say, if I'm going to spend this money, where's my 50% increase in profitability over the spend that makes that a justifiable expenditure? Because if I... And typically, the two classic ones are going to be marketing and labor, a labor that's in, in advance of when I need it and marketing that's trying to get to the next customer. And it, let's say I spend $200,000 of discretionary marketing and labor spend. Well, guess what? I need profit to go up by $100,000, which means I've increased enough profit to cover my cost and make 100000 more. That to us is a win in the launch capital world. And one of our clients was very gracious. He he allowed me to use his business as a case study. Mm. And so we basically sequence in the book a five-year sequencing of his business going from a $700,000 a year revenue business to a $10 million revenue business in five years. They were profitable the whole way. And marketing spend, increased marketing spend every year was their catalyst of pulling the business along in that process. But you get to see how that works.
0: Yeah. When, when it was uh, expanding out the business, how clear was it to your client on where, where that money should go? Or was it kind of a, a trial and error sort of methodology?
1: It's going to vary by business. In their case, they were fortunate for one key thing Mm -hmm. they didn't have to add. So when we talk about launch capital, I refer to it as the catalytic spend. What was the thing that caused you to choose to spend it? And then other costs are going to change because you spent it, but only as activity occurred. And so in their case, they, they could backfill labor after they knew they got new business. Mm. So I didn't have to count the labor increase in labor in the catalytic spend because, if it didn't work, they didn't add anybody, you know, mm-hmm. keys. Now, some cases, like I'm, I'm in a services business. It's not good if I go sell work that I don't have the person to do it. That, that, that's kind of bad. So my catalytic spend in many cases is really going to be more on the labor side of having that next billable resource that can do the work that, that comes in that we go market to and, and, and try to get that work in. So I, I've got to do a little bit of I got to have marketing and labor as my two main catalytic spends for our business. So, so those are things that I think as we started talking about those, it really, as I sh- started before I wrote the book, I was started sharing this in some of my talks, and I could really see people's eyes light up of going, "Yeah, that's what I've been saying all along." I just didn't have any way to show it, <laughs> and and we're still evolving in terms of ways to report it. There, there's a a sample example that I adapted from a, a client situation of showing a business where we did what we call the extractive method, yeah. where we're looking at a client's data and they're seeing profitability go down, but they're spending money trying to grow and expand their facilities. And I showed a process of where, on, and this actually happened on a one-hour phone call with a client live in front of them. Where I just extracted out the launch capital spends to show them the normative run rate of the business. Here's what your launch capital spend is. And now here's our new profit target of where we got going to aim to justify the spend. And that's that's a pretty cool technique. And you can do that to give people that guidance because one of my my clients' favorite Gregisms that I always say is, <laughs> you know, man who aims at nothing hits it with amazing accuracy. And so knowing a target, so this goes back to that Hawthorne principle, knowing yeah. that target, you will fare better hitting that target if you actually know what it is and quantify it versus, oh, well, let's just try harder. Yeah, when has that worked?
0: <laughs> so, yeah, you, you talked about labor as it, pr- it talks to your service industry. One of the concepts in the original book you talked about a lot was a labor productivity. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's really kind of our our bread and butter in terms of of analysis. So we believe the classic error in accounting presentation has been mixing labor with something that's not labor on your P&L. Because, listen, labor labor is a variable output cost. It comes to work with an attitude every day. So it has good days. It has bad days. And if you don't have a mechanism to measure the output of labor, labor is not a percentage of something. Labor is an output mechanism, and you've got two main outputs, possibly a third. But every business will generally, in our simple numbers P&L structure, will always use two of you got a direct labor piece, which we hold accountable to gross margin production. And then you've got a management labor piece, which we hold accountable to contribution margin. So contribution margin is what most people would call gross profit. We don't really like the term gross profit because profit is a confusing word. We want to save any discussion of profit being the true bottom line of the business. So we've stacked the business model to say revenue minus COGS without labor is gross margin. Gross margin minus direct labor is contribution margin. So that's what we call the business engine. And that's really where 90% of your time and attention and focus should be. And then we look at management. All other labor that's not direct is management labor. Now it may include some salespeople so one, some of our clients will do a secondary extraction of labor efficiency of looking at salespeople. We'll take them out of the management labor piece and do a separate sales labor efficiency ratio. And so when I contributed the the chapter to Vern Harnish's Scaling Up book, so chapter 13 is my chapter in there. So I, I show an example of, of separating out management labor and sales labor and looking at their efficiencies compared to direct labor. And, and so it is amazing. I mean, and it makes management teams squirm a bit when we start measuring their effectiveness because when we see management labor efficiency go down, we're going, hey guys, you know, back here you used to be a four, now you're three and a half. Here's how much contribution, if we're going to spend this money for management labor, here's the contribution margin we need to be heading for you guys to be justified of, of being around. Or otherwise, we got to make a change.
0: And what are the is what are it are it. numbers for specific situations that you've come to as, as good numbers? Well,
1: you know, what's interesting is, so direct labor efficiency is all over the board. Mm-hmm. So I, I will give you the basic theory of, of sure. direct labor efficiency. So think of it like this. The skinniest, worst labor efficiency is a generic staffing business. Because if, if you go to a staffing company... They're essentially being hired to find the person, run their payroll, and replace, pay their minimum essential payroll taxes and benefits, and then replace them if you don't like them. So, what the marketplace generally prices that out at is $1.35. So, for every dollar you're paying that person, the staffing business generally is charging you $1.35. Ten cents of that's covering payroll taxes and minimum essential benefits. Mm-hmm. And and then the other 25 cents per dollar of payroll being run is what you're compensating them to do the management function of, of recruiting and running payroll. Now, move that up in the sense that what we call body shop businesses. So government contracting is a good body shop business. A body shop business means I'm providing people. It's a basic management, but not moment to moment management. So I'm putting people on a contract and I'm running payroll and doing some contract administration. So those, that those labor efficiency ratios are about a buck 70 to a buck 80. Once I start putting management and oversight of those people, direct labor efficiency starts to go to about a two to two and a quarter. As I get to subject matter expertise, I might get up to two and a half in those regards to get beyond those things. I've got to do a business model that is a blend of a product or service or technology-enhanced labor to get to the a three or a four or, or those kinds of things. So like in a landscaping business, if I'm doing irrigation, probably my direct labor efficiency ratio is going to be about a three and a half to a four. Now, one, I'm selling, there's a product that's kind of going in there with it, and then I've got labor associated with it. But I've also got a heavier burden of management so the higher the direct labor efficiency ratio goes the more responsibility management has to probably direct those people when labor efficiency ratio direct labor efficiency ratios are lower I'm generally staffing what I would call self-managed uh, professionals or, or those kind of things but there again you can you've got some situations of where people will go all the way up to Seven or eight, you know, in a what we call a technology enhanced environment. And some of those, but those are pretty rare. Now, what's interesting is when you look at contribution margin to management labor dollar, there's actually a fairly consistent number between a four to five in most well run businesses. There's a few management situations where you can be okay profitable at a three and a half. But I generally think those businesses are probably throwing too much management effort at something and not thinking about systems, processes, strategy, real efficient implementation. Our mindset is to throw labor at something to fix it when, you know, that, that probably wasn't the answer in that process. But we, we do see, especially once you get over $5 million in revenue, a pretty tight correlation in that four to five range. So when we're doing modeling and our, our planning sessions for clients, when we onboard a new client, we do a one-day session, sometimes remote, sometimes on site. And we'll we'll take their data and put it in our structure and break it down and then replay it to them. And, and and this is this is probably the most fun thing we get to do because what is really fascinating is when you can take somebody's data that they think they know and replay it to them in a way that they've never seen before. And all of a sudden their eyes get big and they go, Oh my gosh, I see it now. And it's like, okay, we've earned our key for that day. And and that's, that's really fun because I'll tell you, there's not a lot of those moments producing a a generic financial statement to support a loan request or something like that. And (laughs) or doing a tax return uh, unless somebody's getting a big refund or something. But even that you can get criticized for, why did you help me with holes in my, you know, so, so really, I mean, it, it does put a, a totally different twist in, on, and on, it's probably the reason why I gravitated to doing this for my part. So it's nice to have other, other traditional accountants doing the parts that I don't want to do. Anymore.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah. Through your methodology, how well can you establish if someone is not doing their job, maybe on the management layer or something like you look at it as a chunk, but how, how sort of detailed can you get?
1: Well, here's the interesting thing that comes yeah. from all this. Is so once you see the data, so one of our favorite things is we is not only the calculation of the data, it's not a static moment in time. Yeah. It is looking at it as it moves across time. And so we're big fans of the rolling 12 picture of data. So as I replay to you rolling 12 analytical data across time, you get to replay the story of your business. And mm. so we'll look, so think of rolling 12 as a, it's like in the Olympic world record of a particular activity. When was your best ever rolling 12 revenue? When was your best ever rolling 12 gross margin dollars? When was your best 12 rolling 12 gross margin percentage? What was your best labor efficiency ratio? And what's interesting is none of those best usually occur in the same month. mm mm-hmm. And and see this this is that coordination aspect of business to where we get one piece working over here and we let something else <laughs> fall off. And and when you can see this picture of going, oh, okay, you know, we, we got this going, but we let that one go. Okay, I gotta get that one up and got this. And, and so once they start to see that, they can actually start to respond to it. And, and truly, it's the one thing that drives true optimization you know, of business. I mean, and and that's, what, that's what you're striving for. And, and so many people are trying to grow their business w- before they optimize it. And that is just such a low probability of success move. Not to say that you can't get away with it, but there is a low probability of success. And so I want to increase our client's ability to make good bets. Any any attempt to grow is a bet. There's so much we don't know. But listen, if I can improve my odds, I can probably stay in the game a lot longer. And capital is so precious. Well, let's just don't waste it by just throwing spaghetti on the wall and see if it sticks.
0: Yeah, I see it. You just, you're just seeing what happened and start to pick out the clues of what's affecting your non-distorted or minimally distorted yeah. financials and just try to create a set of practices that, that makes sense for your business.
1: Yeah. And there again, then you take it to that. And as you get bigger, then what happens is the business becomes three-dimensional. So we, we have this concept we refer to as the profit cube or segment reporting. And so one of the vast weaknesses in the world of accounting is our reporting on business segments. And so mm-hmm. we've developed a methodology that I think has really helped our clients understand That I can look at my business in total, I can look at it by location, by line of business, by customer, by employee, whatever slice that we can look at that we can tag. Now, as a business is emerging in size, you start to realize maybe they don't have access to that data at the present, but they can start gaining it. So those are a little harder to do. And sometimes they have imperfect information. And so one of our best skill sets is we're really good at working with bad data. You get enough bad data, you can normalize it and actually get some learning from it. And then you, but there again, you gotta, you gotta paint the picture of what's possible for them to see. And then once they see it, then they buy into the reason why they need it. And then hopefully they won't fall over themselves in the, data system implementation. But I mean, you can get some incredibly good segment data just with QuickBooks, quick, desktop, online, Zero. A lot of those are just poor game plans that people have running those systems and commitments of who's being held responsible to gather the data at the point of transaction. And so a lot of times we help people through that. Pro- so once we do the planning session, you kind of expose all of these sicknesses, in your data sets and, and your strategy And so then the prescription then starts to come, okay, well, what are the things that we can do better going forward? And then you start to see the data perfect. It started to see the data get more robust. You start to see the segment data become more believable. We've got an MSP that I just did a call with today and I was so proud of them. I mean, they have truly turned their business around where they were were in trouble. And And theirs, they've got 16 what they call solutions. And so every call we monitor, how is your rolling 12 labor efficiency for that solution compared to the rolling three? Because in a managed service provider model, their, their profitability is fairly consistent month to month to month because their clients pay them every month. And so in their case, we have the distinct advantage that if I see the rolling three trend is better than the rolling 12 trend, that's telling me where I'm going. If I see that the rolling three trend is worse than the rolling 12, that's an immediate action item of going, hey, what's going on here? What can we fix? And, and how can we do that? Now, when people have more seasonality, you've got to add some other features and you have to really more strongly rely on just the the one good thing about rolling 12 is it's truth no matter what month you look at. And, and so then you have to rely on rolling 12 and then do a little more detective work on the shorter periods to then do the cause analysis.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Now, you talked about reporting business becoming more 3D. But for the business, I mean, you talk about between 1 to 5 million. What's the the right reporting cadence? What sort of things should uh, entrepreneurs look at uh, constantly?
1: Well, it's one of those things that if you're a business that knows your gross margin every week, Mm -hmm. The highest best reporting is I don't need to look at my operating expenses every week, but I do need to look at gross margin and potentially contribution margin every week if I can. So we've got a lawn care business client does a phenomenal job of this. So guess, guess how he designs his data set. He looks at 50 rolling 52 week revenue, gross margin, direct labor. Mm-hmm. and he's got it for the company in total and he's got it for his two divisions and he's got it for each team so he he's done he's done all those step downs and so every week he sits down with his team and says okay what do we what do we bill this week what do we pay people this week and we know exactly that trend of the 52 week is telling him the true trend of the business the rolling 13-week is telling them how this quarter is going, but you've got seasonality because you don't cut grass the same way all year. And you've got a, a rolling four-week period that is essentially a month. So, so this was this was kind of the thing that just always bugged me. Whoever came up with this calendar system of having 12 months that sometimes is 52 weeks and sometimes is 53, and they all start on a different day of the, uh, the month and they all have different numbers of days of month, that's been a big problem in a lot of businesses. And so we live our lives on a weekly rhythm. And so we really believe strongly in building... There's actually a blog on the numbers.me website called the, the Weekly Accounting Process. And so we believe that if you want real-time live data, you build your complete accounting cycle around this weekly process. And Because even companies that say, oh, we only bill once a month, and I go... Is that your choice or is that forced on you? And most of the time, it's your choice because you're lazy. You didn't develop a good product. You should be billing every time you have a billable event. My mantra is bill quickly and bill often. And believe it or not, your customers want you to bill quickly and bill often. Nobody likes a, a late invoice that they didn't know was coming. The sooner you address it, the better. And, and it's like, these are just classic errors that people make all the time in that process. And so if you commit to this weekly process, now, granted, operating expenses, I mean, you know, like I said, you're still rolling 12 for most people is going to be their, their key number. So you're going to want to look at that. You should close your books no more than five days into the month. And really, I get my data the first day of the month. So we try to be a good example and do what we say. And so, so a lot of that is just backing up and designing a system. There are certain things that are keys in terms of reporting rhythm, though, is we, and, and I, I we highly recommend your listeners have somebody other than the owner of the business do this. I get a daily email telling me who paid us yesterday and what the cash balance was. I get a once a week, two-week cash flow forecast. And that is golden. I'll tell you, probably the two-week cash flow forecast. There's a template on the simplenumbers.me site I mentioned it in the book as well. It's a simple download template. I'm not looking. I don't need the list of bills individually. I just need them in big groups. But the ability to think rolling consistently of what do I owe this week? What am I going to owe next week? I should have no surprises two weeks from now in my payment process. And if I do, something's broken. Who is not giving us insight of what we owe? And if you do that rolling two week, then just updating forecasting once a month is usually pretty adequate. Now, given the current times that we're in, this being the time of the COVID nineteen crisis and those things, everybody's kind of started to buy into my mantra of weekly forecasting. And so, I learned that from I give credit to Jack Stack with Great Game of Business and Springfield Remanufacturing of learning that technique. And now more than ever, you better be forecasting weekly to know where you stand.
0: Yeah. I mean, is there any sort of tweaks between service companies and uh, manufacturing or product companies with the type of numbers you look at or ratios? I mean,
1: certainly for a service-based business, many times there's not going to have a COGS, but you might. Because a COGS for a service-based business is where you're doing a trade-off analysis of do I outsource some feature or thing that I'm facing the customer for and billing them for, but I'm not as good at it as a, a third party is. And so, I'll, I'll count them as cogs to then get to the pure margin number that my labor measures. In a manufacturing environment, I've got to deal with AR inventory, maybe some deferred revenue. So, I've got a little more complex balance sheet, potentially. But e- even in a services business, I better be trying to find ways to get paid in advance, get paid faster, manage deferred revenue, and I think a lot of people just say, oh, that's too hard. I'm not going to do it. Well, when you start to understand the change in re- return on invested capital, because you find a way to build 30 days in advance or stay ahead of the, the, the cost curve, that's the power tool, I believe, in, in getting great returns on your business. And if you ever go to sell your business, that's where an investor is going to look at you totally differently you know, than your competitor in that process.
0: Very cool. Now you obviously give a lot of speeches. You, you're a busy guy. What sort of habits or routines help you uh, stay successful? <laughs>
1: I've got a great executive assistant. <laughs> I, I resisted the executive assistant for a lot of years. One of my EO Forum mates just always used to get on to me. Ah, you know, why don't you have an assistant? And then finally, I got one. I started off with a remote assistant, and she was great. And she had uh, some other things come up that she couldn't keep working for us, and. And fortunately, we had hired a really good person at the office. And so, so my executive assistant at the office, she covers for me and also our consulting team. So she does a fabulous job. And so what we've learned, so we had to build a different unit of business in our accounting practice. So, mm-hmm. so we've got tax returns, we've got financial statements, we do outsource bookkeeping and, and mostly more monthly closing kind of things for clients with, with our accounting solutions team. But our consulting practice was, it was a different animal. And what we evolved into, which I think has made us just enormously productive, is we live off of the calendar. Mm We kind of took some of the techniques from agile development philosophies and the scrum process and and adapted that. And so essentially, I don't have a to-do list. I have a calendar. If if something's not on my calendar, I don't know that I'm supposed to do it. (laughs) And so that's really where my assistant, who's also our, our consulting team coordinator, and all of us live off of that calendar. And so okay. everybody's being held accountable. If it's not on your calendar, that's on you.
0: Okay. So so basically, opposed to living off just a static thing, everything that needs to be done gets slotted into a time slot somewhere.
1: It is. It has it has to be. And I'll tell you, it, that has been the most freeing thing for me mm. because I literally, kind of late in the day, I'll look at tomorrow's calendar and see, okay, what what's coming up? If I'm thinking about wanting to block out some time to, to go take a trip somewhere or have some personal time, I better put it on my calendar or else somebody's going to sell that time. <laughs> so, you know, I, and, and I, I probably, I probably only control maybe a tenth of my calendar. Most of the time it's my, my assistant, the other people in the firm are, are filling it up, but it's on me to block it if I don't want it filled up. Yeah. And I, I tell you, I mean, we, and because we, we monitor our own labor efficiency, our, We're probably thirty percent more effective with our consulting team in terms of our output per dollar paid in in labor, yeah, consulting practice because of that compared to traditional forms. And we've been we've been trying to break the mold with our traditional parts of the practice, and they're they're a little slow to to buy into the calendar methodology. But I think we're starting to win them over.
0: Yeah, I mean, what are they calling pushbacks on the the calendar method?
1: Well, so and and this is this is the thing that everybody who is is in an hourly profession, so i I, I usually say this in my talks is if you bill by the hour so i'll I'll, I'll say how many of you bill by the hour? raise your hand you yeah. leave <laughs> half the room <laughs> I got bad news for you. Billing by the hour has only two possible economic outcomes. <laughs> you either give away your expertise or you charge for your ignorance you you almost never achieve economic equilibrium and I said. So it, it because we plan, because we put it on the calendar, we do almost everything in the consulting team on a fixed price basis. So we have pretty good statistical outcomes of how long it takes to do any particular type of thing. Mm. And so it gives us the ability to price quickly, price fairly, and, and everybody knows what they're aiming at. Versus in an hourly profession, one of my the guy that got me into EO, Ron Hollis, I mean, I, I just love Ron. He, he's an engineer and he cha- he would always challenge me. He says, why do you accountants bill by the hour? I says, you know, I ask you how much a tax return costs. And you say, well, it depends on how much time I have in it. And he said, time is not a unit of value. It's a unit of cost. And he was absolutely right. And so it just took me a while to figure out how to do most of the things we do on a fixed price basis. And there's, there's some times you can't control scope, but more often, you can. What we are too lazy to do is put the planning into it, and so because we're accustomed to calendaring, we actually are a little bit easier to to manage that way. And I think it's just not in the natural occurrence for people to learn how to how to calendar correctly. So, yeah. and then I say, well, I, I well I don't know how it's going to turn out. Guess what? Nobody else does either, but. There is a statistical frequency that you can kind of predict on. So we learned this from the dentist industry. The high-performing dentist will not schedule 100% of their day. They leave a high-value appointment in the morning and a high-value appointment in the afternoon because the last thing they want to do is, and they can do this pretty easily from their hygienist, they can fill them up with fillings. Well, fillings is not a high-value procedure. Cosmetic dentistry, crowns, root canals, those are high-value procedures. They know from the industry that if a person is identified through a routine examination that they need a crown filling or, or cosmetic dentistry, there's a low probability for them to come back if they ever get out the door. Mm. So the mo- if, if you have a quick available appointment today or tomorrow to get them back in to take care of that problem, you are more likely to be the dentist of choice to take care of it. But if you, if you don't have any, any openings for the next two weeks, you're not going to get that service. And you're, you're going to spend your time doing the low-value stuff, and somebody else is going to do their time doing the high-value stuff. Mm. That's the value of calendaring, and, it, and it's a strategy. It's not about filling up every moment. It's about filling up the high-value moments first and then tucking in the low-value things second and leaving you some flex time at the end of the day. That's that's the power tool.
0: Nice. I like it. Is there uh, anything I should have asked you but didn't? <laughs> I
1: mean, we could probably talk for a couple more hours, but I think everybody <laughs> would probably tune us out by then. So they'll, they'll just have to uh, have to wait for the following podcast after the next book is, is released. So.
0: No doubt. Well, Greg, thank you so much. I definitely learned a lot. Thank you.
1: No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. Also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon.